The following contains adult language, content, and description of actions that may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Jerry Watkins, host of World Music Views, and you're now tuned into the Urban Caribbean Music Edition. Caribbean music is the heartbeat of the world, and the recording industry is the heartbeat of the region. In these episodes, I will take you on a journey on how Caribbean music and culture is impacting the world. Let's go! Hi, I'm Tyrus Ryan, and I'm here to tell you, this inflation thing is important. High inflation is a wicked thing. And we must abolish it like slavery. We want inflation low so we can plan and prosper. But if it drop too low, we can't grow. All the high prices that mean me harm. Hey, they can go back where they came from. No inflation monster. Child prosper. So that middle ground is what we want. Low, stable, and predictable inflation. Because low, stable, and predictable inflation is to the economy like what the baseline is to reggae music. Listen up! Like low and stable inflation of the rock economy. A message by Bank of Jamaica. I did a lot of research for this conversation and it's really a pleasure to be talking to you like this but one of the reasons why I thought it's important to speak with someone like you is the developments that are happening in the music industry and before we get into it I want to first of all welcome you to World Music Views, World Music Views TV show, World Music Views podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio app Apple everywhere. And this is the Urban Caribbean Music Edition. We're talking to Jeremy Harding, who has an extensive catalog of music, worked with a lot of artists, do some big things, work with Sean Paul from zero to 150 platinum mm -hmm. records. And he certainly has something to share with us. So Jeremy, big up yourself. Welcome to World Music Views. Awesome, Jerry. Thanks for having me, and, and congrats to you as well on the program. Been, been checking out some of the podcasts and stuff. Great job. Awesome. Well, I've well never, needed. I've never said this publicly, but World Music View started because of you here. Oh, come on, bro. As no way. I, I think I told, <laughs> I told you this before in a way, but I, I've always said it. I saw you arguing with a guy on Facebook about the relevance of the Billboard charts as is in terms of calculating consumer value for reggae dance. Oh, I remember, I remember that conversation, yes, yeah. yes. And, and, and I had similar thoughts, but I wondered how I could curate it and make it make sense. And after speaking to a guy in, in Miami named Mark Echo, I don't know if you know him, he, he runs Echo no. Brand. He owns- Oh, Compton. okay. Oh, Mark Echo, okay, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. So Mark, Mark kind of showed me how to make culture and, and, and make it, bigger than just the neighborhood stuff, you know? And, and that's how World Music Views came about. But, but the seed was planted because of you and speaking on Spotify. So I want to go back from the beginning of Jeremy Harding. How did you get into the music industry? Um, it started off when I was in, in, in well, the industry. 
Okay. Or actual music. industry. Music. Oh, got well, it, it, it started as a kid going to, um, at the time it was, while I was attending high school, I went to Campion. Um, I was also going to the Jamaica School of Music um, at the time, which before it was called the Edna Mandel College of the Performing Arts. It was just a separate schools, the disciplines, music school, drama school, dance school, at the same location, but you could attend as an after-school student and you could attend on the weekends. It wasn't a tertiary college. So I used to go there and do uh, guitar lessons. And I also sang in the choir and I did music theory. So it was sort of after school program and a Saturday morning program where you could send the kids to learn music um, whilst you were actually attending high school. So I did that for five years and uh, did five years of music theory and you know studied uh, guitar actually with Mikey Fletcher was one of my teachers. Mikey Fletcher plays bass for Shaggy. I know you guys Mike. know Fletcher. Yeah, man, calls himself Mega Bass is his name. And also um, Dr. Ray Hitchens, who teaches up at UA. They were my instructors. Uh, left from there, I went out, away to school, to boarding school in Ottawa for two years uh, instead of doing sixth form. And then I went to McGill University in Montreal. And while I was at McGill, I discovered this love for DJing and myself and a, 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 a college, a campus mate started a radio show on uh, McGill's um, college radio station called CKUT 90.3 FM, which in a place like Montreal is effectively the urban station of the city because of their Canadian content laws. So you don't have like regular CBC, Canadian Broadcast um, Corporation shows that are playing a lot of um, urban music, especially not, you know, dancehall or reggae. So I did a radio show for four or five years. And also while I was doing that, I attended a school called uh, Trebas Institute. Uh, which is a recording arts school. If uh, some people know um, Full Sail in Orlando, so it's yeah. a similar type of thing. It's like the Canadian equivalent. Um, yeah, so I did that. So I was DJing and I had a radio show and I started working in nightclubs and DJing as well. And I went to the recording arts school. And um, all of that led to actually coming back to Jamaica and opening a small studio in the early 90s, uh, 92, 93. And uh, starting to do jingles. So I did jingles for radio and for TV, jingle production. I had a studio and where I started doing dub plates for local um, sound systems like Renaissance um, when they were just starting at the time and uh, Syndicate Disco, who, who doesn't exist anymore. But that was my brother, Zachary Harding. It was Left Side. It was Arif Cooper from Fame. And it was Sean Anderson, Copper Sean from Copper Shot. They were some of the early selectors on Syndicate Sound. And uh, yeah, we had a small studio and I did jingles and we did dub plates and uh, for these sound systems. And um, that's what kind of all led into, you know, meeting Sean Paul and Mr. Vegas and a lot of those young talents, uh, discovering them basically with our little studio and making dub plates for sound systems. And up to, you know, decided to try and produce my first set of rhythms, which was, you know, Fearless Rhythm and then followed by Playground Rhythm which yielded Who Am I by Beaneman, and it sparked Sean's career with Infiltrate. Um, so this puts it around 1998 now. So that's the build from about 93 to 98. And um, yeah, just about that time, me and Sean built that relationship and I became his manager. And, um, and yeah, that's kind of how I got into the music industry in a nutshell. Continued oh, ever oh, since. You skip out the whole of my part. That, 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 that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to feel that, right? <clears throat> Okay. What made you think, what gave you the audacity to start your own studio? Because as you know, back in the days, this was not a thing for everybody to just have a studio. It's not like now where a man can set up a studio in his room. 
what what gave you that audacity where did you get the resources motivation all of that to do that oh what happened at the time was that when i was studying abroad in in canada between montreal and then i moved to toronto i'd actually uh, made some connections uh with some guys that were starting um new platforms with uh computer recording and there were guys that were working with um nuendo which is a steinberg company product uh, some people know Cubase and Nuendo, those, those pieces of software. Some guys that were working with Nuendo, and they were actually building some custom PCs uh, to be able to effectively run the software and do computer recording. And at the time, the program we now know as Pro Tools was, was in its infancy. And they had a, a, a kind of a, a bedroom version called um, Session 8, which was an eight-track digital recorder. So the cost for entry was significantly smaller. This was at the very beginning of the digital audio renaissance of recording. And because I had been away at school and I was kind of exposed to these technologies and I was kind of around the crowd and they're like, listen, man, if, you know, we can help you build a custom PC. You're going to go back to Jamaica. You should get this software, check it out and see what it was about. So at that time, that cost to do that per se was a cost of building a computer, whatever, a, a PC at the time. And the actual system might have cost maybe, I don't know, four or 5,000 Canadian dollars. So it was a much smaller investment um, at that time, as opposed to trying to, to have an actual big time recording studio, which existed, you know, like the mixing labs or, or, or you know, Penthouse or any of those places, which was like, you know, with a big, huge mixing board and a big tape machine. And that stuff cost hundreds and thousands of US dollars. There is no way you could just get into that. So my whole thing was about starting a project studio. And I was actually the first of its kind here in Jamaica to pioneer that with a small, um, fully digital setup. In other words, recording to computers. Other guys were recording to um, digital tapes, like ADAT machines, they used to call them. Um, Tony Kelly, Dave Kelly, and that was all new technology at the time, but the actual physical record to hard disk recording then, as it was called, um, I was a pioneer in that in Jamaica at the time. So that was like a big deal. Um, so as you said, the audacity to do it just became came out of the fact that I saw opportunity and that I was sort of aligned with the tech at the time, with the people who were sort of on the tech and they're like, listen, man, you're going back to Jamaica. Nobody in Jamaica has this, you know, we know Sly and Robbie, we know Mixing Lab, we know these guys down there, but they're not using computers to record anything. So, you know what I mean? That's, that's how I got started. So you have seen music, maybe you haven't seen it from the invention of the, 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 the gramophone, but in your time, <laughs> in your time, right, from, from the early 90s, and, and you'd have a glimpse of it in the 80s, what would you say were significant shifts, other than Pro Tools and so, but in terms of Caribbean music development, what were some of the significant shifts that just acted as a parachute, as something to push off <clears throat> um, a trampoline for the culture and the music? Well, well as, we, as I said it, actually, that was one of the most significant shifts at the time was the introduction of using computers to record music because the generation of producers before myself and Tony and Dave Kelly and Shams and these kind of guys um, were the Slan Robbies and the Gussie Clarks and you know the Colin Fattles and, and those guys who are still using the traditional studios with the tape machines and the large format mixing consoles. So what happened was that when we introduced recording with computers, as we call it DAW, Digital Audio Workstation, DAW, right? Um, the DAW concept, um, we became leaders in the space because we were just the young up kid, the young kids up and coming that 
understood how to use computers to record music. So that created a massive shift towards the, the creators because now you took it out of the hands of the big studios and uh, the really like, you know, qualified seasoned actual engineers that know to use mixing boards. And you put it into the hands of like, you know, kids who are like of a new generation of computer, um, what's the word I want, adeptness, you know what I'm saying? To, uh, to be able to use these kind of tools. I mean, this is the beginning of CDs. This is the beginning of email. You understand? So it was a massive technological shift. And unfortunately, you had a lot of casualties of people who are, you know, brilliant in the field in Jamaica music before the transition to digital audio. And they just couldn't make the transition. Some of them just, they, they weren't interested. They didn't like how it sounded. Yeah, so the shift into the digital recording space really meant that the practitioners changed. Because as I said, there were casualties from the traditional analog space that couldn't make the jump to digital. Either they just didn't have the tools, um, they weren't accepting the format, they didn't understand how to use it. Um, they didn't like how it sounded. They didn't think it would have been the future of music. Um, there is a lot of reasons why that never happened, but it, it just changed the actual people who were involved in the creation process. It was a big shift and a big swing um, at the time. So that, that tremendously impacted um, the course of the music. So all of a sudden now, instead of you having to have, well, there, there are two reasons that why it impacted. Primarily, first of all, there is a, a financial um, imperative behind the shift. So before that, if you were a record producer, you had to physically own a, a tape, right? A 24 track reel. You had to pay for studio time at a large studio. You had to pay an engineer. You couldn't do it on your own because you had no idea how to operate the equipment. And you had to pay, you know, musicians, first of all, to, you know, to help record and, you know what I'm saying? I'm putting on radio on your rhythm, rhythm tracks and stuff like that. So the process of being a record producer cost so much more money and you had to have so much more, you know, contacts and, and, and know-how into the industry. Once you shifted that into a setup where you could do it on a computer, with that ability to record on a computer digitally, record actual audio, also came the ability to create music on a computer. So we started with sequencing and then we were able to, you know, program and use sounds and use sounds that are inside the computer. So that eliminated the need to have you understand? Five, six musicians, for example, because now you had an opportunity. It's like, oh, well, if I can record in the computer, I can use these drum sounds from the computer. I can program it myself. You know, we're still using drum machines and keyboards and stuff, but you required less musicians, um, less time. You didn't have to pay for the studio time. You didn't have the, the cost of the tape. Um, you could kind of learn your sort of ad hoc digital engineering you know, which substituted for the actual engineer that had to put a tape machine on the physical board and string up everything. So the practitioners changed. So pretty much overnight, after you had, you know, the Jeremy Hardings and the Tony Killers and the Dave Killers, those guys were transitioning from the analog tape world as well, but they were young cats, you know what I'm saying, like myself, and were able to make that shift, you know, Shams as well. Um, but some of the older guys couldn't do it. And then you got an even younger set of guys after me that came into like Don Corleone and um, uh, Blacks. Although you went to school in, in Toronto and, and America, did you um, do hip hop? Did, was hip hop part of what you wanted to do? Was hip hop around? Was there a parallel system going on? I know that from the birth of hip hop and the birth of dancehall, they've always shared producers, ideas, artists, etc. Collaborations happen. What has been your contribution to hip hop, if any, or how 
how have you used hip hop to influence your sound? I think all of us growing up in high school in the late 80s in Jamaica, we were exposed to hip hop at the time. We were getting, you know, cassettes from, um, you know, from New York and people used to travel and bring back cassettes from, from you know, um, DJ Red Alert and, you understand, Marley Marl and people like that who were popular in New York at the time. We were listening to hip hop in our day. We were listening to Rakim and, you know, Big Daddy Kane and we were listening to, you know, KRS-One and all these type of things. And even from, you know, very early, you could see definitely there were, you know, collabs were taking place at the time. You know what I mean? You had Yellow Man and Run DMC and KRS-One and, you know what I'm saying? And, and you know, later on, Supercat and all of these guys, they were experimenting with, with you know, combining hip-hop sounds um, with dancehall and, and back and forth. I mean, it was very prevalent. So I think we were all very influenced by it. I mean, Jamaica had a little breakdance culture. Kingston did anyway. You know what I'm saying? And the high schools used to participate in it. You know, I, I did participate as well. So we did that. We were into breakdancing. You know, the DJ crew started. You know, Delano, them with Renaissance and Marvin and all of those guys before Renaissance, they were with DJ crews. They're learning to cut and scratch and they're very influenced by hip hop. Um, it's very much a foundation of Delano's whole, you know, technique as a selector is his ability. You understand? To, 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 to do what he does, which was heavily influenced by the hip hop genre. So most definitely. And I think when you, you know, start producing records and making beats, especially even after I left Jamaica, obviously, you know, the artists that I would find would be rappers if I was in an urban music scenario. And so, of course, you started making hip hop beats for them as well. So the influence was definitely there in terms of the sound, in terms of the culture. More importantly, um, the, influence, the influence was was definitely there. And I think it even it reared its head even as much so in the 90s when we had records with, um, you know, Heavy D and Bujabanton and we had records with, um, you know, even the local practitioners trying to make hip-hop style beats, you know, being a man that were on the beat, some shocking vibes that were trying to mimic the Buster Rhymes beats. Um, you had artists who started careers by, you know, mimicking rappers, you know, Elephant Man, um, uh, Innocent Crew, um, even Movado in his first early records were, you know, Tupac Bro, songs, which he was kind of revamping. Yeah, <laughs> you get what I'm saying. So yeah, man, the influence has always been there. It's it's, it's not really anything new. I think it, it they were cousins, so to speak, at the time, but they still are, and the influences were shared back and forth, even from you know as far back as uh, the '90s. Why you think hip hop? <clears throat> pop is now pop music. Why you think hip hop, mm -hmm. although it had a parallel existence, two turntables, a mic, break dancing. Um, skills and, and, and sounds. Why you think hip hop is pop, but dancehall is for the most part an underground type of music? Well, I mean, hip hop became pop because it got embraced by a, a wider cross section of the audience. You understand? They just have more numbers. And, you know, it just got embraced like, you know, by not just the black and the urban centers, but, you know, also the white kids. You get what I'm saying? And, 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 and the suburban culture as well. It's just, a, it's just a bigger market. And you have more practitioners from different areas. You started off with the gangster rappers. Not really with the gangster rappers, but you started off with rappers from, you understand, Im impoverished areas and from the streets, quote unquote. And you had the gangster rap, which was another you know, you know, side of it. And then you kind of got to the, like, the college rap. You know what I'm saying? With the, you know, the Lupe Fiascos and the Kanye's and these kind of people. You had the Afrocentric rap music. You know, the De La Soul and the Queen Latifah, you had the, you know, the, 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 the black activist movement rap music, like, you know, Public Enemy and X-Clan and, 
you had so many streams and so many branches of hip hop. And then it kind of became very pop by the time it got to like, you know, P. Diddy, you understand, and, and Mace and Biggie Smalls. And then that kind of blew it up on this kind of pop level. And the records that they were choosing to sample at the time, it used to be like, let's find some obscure soul records, you know, Black American soul records, or even, you know, whatever, quote unquote, white soul records. By the time Diddy came along, Puffy, at the time he called himself, he just started sampling pop records and, you know, started sampling Sting and the police and, you know, and all these other types of records. So, of course, that opens up the mindset as well. But they have a large audience so across the entire it, United States for it to spread, for it to grow, for it to populate with many different branches and streams. Do you think what you just said is it spoke to hip hop's diversity and, and ability to, to just pollinate <laughs> across sections of society. Does dancehall do that? And you think that's one of dancehall's key to growing and, and becoming a bigger genre? Yeah, dancehall is still very much confined to the diaspora. So even when you look back at the marketing strategies that were put behind uh, Sean Paul, for example, or people of that ilk, the same places which they promote the records are the same places where the Jam Jamaican diaspora is active. Right. So in other words, plain English, that's where the Jamaicans are. So those are the markets where you find it finds footing first. New so York. You're talking about your, hey. New York, your Boston, your Miami. You understand those type of places is where the records usually start. And if you look back at a track record of a Sean Paul record or a Serrani record or Egyptian record or, you know, what I'm saying any quote unquote crossover record like that, it all started in those same markets. It starts in the diaspora markets first. It's very difficult for our records. If you want to make a comparison to hip hop, for example, you know, trap music is another genre of hip hop now, which is very well established. A lot of that stuff started, you know, in places like Chicago, you know what I mean? And those, you know, kind of places in, in the United States and now in the Carolinas and those places where there is no Caribbean diaspora to speak of or Jamaican diaspora. So it doesn't take root for us. I don't know. You can ask any dancehall artist today, you know, or 20 years ago, how many shows have they actually booked in Chicago or Detroit? You understand me? Or Mississippi or places like that. You're going to get probably, you know, you're lucky if you get one or two. Yeah. Because that's just not where the market is. And that's a market where hip hop has man managed to proliferate and grow. Then we can't grow in those markets because of the lack of that diaspora support. And it becomes a cultural issue where literally they just don't understand what we're saying. They don't get it. They don't have Jamaican culture around them. They don't know what is jerk chicken. They don't know what is that beef patty. They don't know any of our swear words. They don't know any of our customs. They don't, they don't keep dances. Toronto, on the flip, or even in the UK as well, is so much influenced by Jamaican music because the culture is so prevalent. So when I lived in Canada, between Ottawa, Montreal, and Toronto for a total like, what, seven years or something like that, West Indian culture in Canada is really strong and really powerful. And as a matter of fact, you could argue that it is the Black culture across Canada is West Indian culture. There's very difficult to find a discrete Canadian black culture, for example, in Toronto. It's connected to West Indian culture. So therefore, you get a guy like Drake, who is not West Indian at all, but yet he still uses the lango, the, the lango, the, the, the lingo and the slang and the language. And he says, Wagwan, more tuned from a head top. And you get what I'm saying? And he wants to connect with Mavado and Popcorn and these people because he understands that Jamaican culture is black youth culture in Canada. So it propels his whole 
credibility right, to yeah. be associated with Jamaican culture. You understand? And, and that's how you get. And so that's very much how those places take root. And in the UK, it's even bigger. You, the amount of genres you've had, jungle music, grime music, all of these things, which are all influenced by Jamaican culture. And you know how they talk as well. And you know what I'm saying? And, 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 and like all of the, the, the Jamaican influence in those um, cities as well, which helps form the music and shape the music. So it's very much culture driven. So if you don't see that in pockets in the places in the United States where you wish it'd be more popular, that's just what it boils down to. So music that is taking root come from artists like Sean Paul, Bob Marley and his children, um, Shaggy, in streaming era. Last year, Sean streamed over 600 million times on Spotify. That's his catalog, Bob Marley leading to. Um, Shaggy streamed a billion times on TikTok. Um, his songs did good numbers on Spotify. Do you think streaming has helped the genre? And do you think now that Spotify and Apple is here with a version of their, their platform, um, albeit cheaper and free in, in the case of Spotify, do you think streaming will help the, the genre and music in general in the Caribbean to be more prevalent on mainstream? Well, that's a multifaceted question. First of all, we need to understand that all of our music has been available on all of these platforms from Jump. So whether or not you could access it here in Jamaica on your phone, you understand? It all existed. A few years ago when I was teaching up at University of West Indies, we had this class, we were speaking about Spotify, and the kids there didn't know what I was talking about. And I brought a laptop and I had a, a VPN, a virtual private network, as you know, but for the listeners, they understand to be able to connect to the website. And when they saw it, their first reaction was like, oh, but we can't get this in Jamaica. There's no Jamaican music on it. I said, no, every distributor that somebody here in, in Jamaica, a dancehall producer, reggae producer that we use, whether it's Vipal, Zojak, every single one of these platforms puts the music on Spotify, on Apple Music, on Deezer, on Amazon, all of them. It's available all over. Know that so it's, ne it's, never, it's never not been available. So the audience outside of Jamaica who wants to consume dancehall or reggae always had an opportunity to consume dancehall or reggae. That, that hasn't changed. What I look at it as is this, right? So back in the days, even foreigners, if them do want bust a tune, them come at Jamaica, come to the core audience in our dance, and you play a song of Stone Love or wherever, pasa pasa, and bum 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 and forward, and you get your forward, and you, you can measure the impact of your music with a, with a tested demographic, right? Because the Jamaican audience is hard and, you know, they, they love the fact that if these people say you're good, you're good to go. Record labels, I've seen this happen with people like Kali Buds when, when Colombia was trying to break him. They, brought, they, they, they had a launch at Asylum at the time um, to get the, the impression of how people would receive him. Now I'm saying with Spotify and other streaming platforms being available, do you think that cultural capital still exists to break artists, one, and as a result of breaking them and then the music is now everywhere, will that help? You got 1.2 million people in Kingston. You got 3 million overall, 750,000 between the ages of 15 and 29, right? So if you take that amount of population and say that they're going to stream and then argue that they're going to actually pay for a subscription as well, they're not making enough of a dent into our overall Spotify bottom line 
for somebody outside of Jamaica to observe Spotify's streams and be like, oh my God, this must be the hottest song because now the streams on Spotify have leaped by this increased user patronage from people in Jamaica or the Caribbean. The numbers just can't support it, number one. Number two, we already have YouTube as our barometer of what our quote-unquote local, um, what you would say, what, what's happening and what's, you know, popping yeah, in Jamaica. Oh, they're consuming the music. Yes. You understand? YouTube is already the barometer that we're all using. And even with YouTube still, you're going to account for maybe, I, I don't know the exact figures. It's got to be maybe 60% of it is local in some cases, maybe less, 50, 40. It's still a well, worldwide no, audience which no, taps into music views, World Music Views does collect this information every week. And I do Jamaica. So I'll, I right. can pull up now and tell you which artist is streaming the most in Jamaica on each platform. Um, based on Montego Bay, Kingston, like all the parishes. Okay, but, so could, give us the idea then. If somebody has a million streams totally, how much of that is attributed to a Jamaican audience? Could you give us a rough? 100%, because it's a Jamaican chart. So I can tell you how many persons are streaming in Jamaica. All right, but, so give me an idea of a big record of a Jamaican dancehall record and from a Jamaican audience. Biggest record, you know, I've been doing the chart for, for 2018 till now. The biggest record yeah. ever streamed in a week was Lighter with a million in one week. From okay. Jamaica, from Jamaica, nowhere else. From Jamaica, from okay. Jamaica. Every week, the number one record would have like maybe 300,000 to 500,000 hits. But when Lighter dropped, it, it did a million right. that week when it went to number one. Okay. That, that, that's, that's, that's fantastic. That's great. You're, uh, the argument is then you're going to get those million people to migrate to a Spotify platform. And even if you got every single one of them to migrate to Spotify, to put their million views on Spotify, you're mm -hmm. still not making enough of a dent in a Spotify, um, what do you call it, in a view count that anybody's going to take notice of it is what I'm trying to say outside of Jamaica to be like, well, that's an indicator that that's her hot song in Jamaica. They're, they're, they're not, the, the culture of how they consume music on Spotify is not to go on there and look to say, oh, well, this is hot, therefore let me listen to this. It's, it's not how they use the Spotify culture of consuming music. You follow what I'm saying? It's a very different way. They do it by playlisting, first of all, which Jamaica has got a lot of groundwork to catch up on of how to do this. Here's the big part that I'm going to throw at you. And, and my second follow-up question will be, mm. how did you break Sean Paul? But, but think about this. I, I want to parallel Sean's success and what's happening now for other people. So Jamaica and the other Caribbean islands put together have 26 million internet users, right? Probably half, right. Probably half of that are active music listeners and probably a quarter mm. will stream stuff, like YouTube stuff. Because when, when you go skilly bang, um, all the guys that got number one in Cayman, Trinidad, etc. cumulatively, they probably stream between one and three million for the week, right? Mm -hmm. But there's Africa, which is not readily accounted for as a core audience for, for the genres that are made in Jamaica and the Caribbean. What, to what do you attribute Africa as a core audience for, for bossa artists, bossa sound? Africa has their own artists, though. Africa has their own streaming services. Africa has Boomplay and things like that with nearly 80 million subscribers in one place alone. 
Africa has a lot of streaming services where they stream their music from their artists and places like Nigeria where they have, you know, play things in 50 different languages. You understand? That they have to. Africa's, Africa, um, their streaming services are tied into their mobile networks. So they're offered on the mobile platforms. They're a part of the mobile platforms. That is how they can overcome that paywall. And the subscribers are paying like, you know, a buck 50 US, the equivalent. You understand? For a month, as opposed to in Jamaica, Spotify is charging $5.99 and Apple is charging $5.99. Africa is not an, an, a, a territory that is waiting to consume Jamaican music and, oh my God, Spotify is here. Their user base is already using their streaming platforms. They're, they're not, they have not been sitting around waiting for Spotify or Apple Music to be, to be available in any of their regions. You do the research on it. So I don't think that that opens up all of a sudden this floodgate to say like, oh, wow, well, all of a sudden, because Spotify is available, you know what I mean, across these African countries, people are going to jump on it now and they're going to now go and start to stream Jamaican music. Mm -hmm. That It doesn't compute. That math does not compute at all. They have their audience. They make their music. And Assamid, they're paying what they're paying through their mobile carrier and their service already. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that, that makes that jump, that difference. You have to remember this, you know, there was a time back in the 90s, you know, when Japan was one of these major markets for reggae artists, I remember. right? We'd go there and we'd tour all the time and you had all the Japanese selectors come here and people are trying to do this whole thing with Japan back and forth. Japan was its own market for licensing. Like I could license a record and give it to the US and give it to the UK differently. This is before, obviously, the internet. And you could license to Japan. All of that disappeared. Japan eventually just got their own reggae bands, their own reggae artists mm -hmm. and hold their own concerts. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. and just learned and took what they did and, and created their own culture around it. And the African music, whether it's, you know, Afrobeat, sort of, you want to call it, they have done the exact same, bro. So I don't, I don't look to Africa as like, Spotify will now be available there. We're going to see this massive uptick in people you now supporting Jamaican music. They already have their platforms. They, they, they weren't sitting around waiting for Spotify to come. Like how we have been kind of sitting around, quote unquote, sitting around waiting for, you get what I'm saying? a major streaming platform to hit us. You know what I'm saying? There, so I, I don't really believe. So now that Listen, it hit us, now that the streaming I'm gonna platform hit us, right? Yeah. In your words, it hit us. Do you think artists have a responsibility to, to make the streaming platform cool or the streaming platform has to make itself cool and relevant to the culture in terms of playlists, tastemakers, all of that who, who will curate what's hot on the platform? No, the first one is what you said. I think the great opportunity from it, so let me not sound so super negative, like Spotify makes no sense and it can't work. Let me be positive. The positive uptake that I take from this, right, from it being here, is that we as creators will now understand how the platform works, which means that we'll be able now to understand how playlisting works. We'll be able now to be able to lobby to get songs on playlists and how to curate playlists. We'll be able to make that into our priority we'll be able to understand and take a look at how the system works, who is streaming, in what areas, how the platform is being used. We as the creators, whether it be the record producers, the labels, the guys that build the rhythms, them, the artists ourselves, the writers, all of us will now be able to have a view onto the platform and into the marketplace. Can I imagine like, you know, if you are growing crops, for example, in the country and you've never seen inside of a supermarket, you have no idea how your products are being sold. You just know you grow them and you send them to town or whatever and you get back a check, right? Because they're being sold somewhere, but you've never actually seen them. Now, for the first chance, you get to walk into those supermarkets 
and see where your products are being placed on the shelf, where the other products are, how the whole supermarket runs, what the system is. This is the advantage that we're getting out of now having access to Spotify and Apple Music here for us. That's the most major advantage. You get what I'm saying? Learning how that industry works. So that is what I see. Spotify's bottom line is just to get subscribers. They couldn't care less about the, the culture of anything. They're just trying to, they're going for world domination. You understand? That's what their issue is. Oh, we'll just sign up 80, 80 something more countries. Awesome. Really? So we're going to get how much percentage of that paid subscribers that we're going to get? Yeah. You know, can we get 50,000 kids in Jamaica? I think that number is ridiculous anyway. To pay five ninety nine, I don't think you're getting anywhere near that. But whatever you get, it's just gravy for them per month. You understand? They don't have a mandate to expose the culture or, or do anything like that necessarily with it. That's, that's not on Spotify at all. That's on us to go into the platform, see how it works. You understand? Get onto playlists, try and utilize the playlist now. Let's contact the guy that does Dance All Official. You see this other playlist that comes about, let local producers, artists themselves start to make their own user playlists like that. You understand? Promote their brands push their content the way they want to push it, take advantage of things like Smart Hub and those type of internet services now where it's pretty much like a pay-for-play system to get onto playlists. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? For example, now they need to explore that and look into that. That's the optic of us being able to receive Spotify here in Jamaica. To be honest with you, anybody who is a, a, a music producer, or record label, with all the technology that they have sitting down in front of them with their computers and their software and and everything else they're using to create music. These should have been the most tech-savvy people anyway in the music industry. You understand? They, ha- they, they, they should have done have a VPN on their phone a long time looking on Spotify and seeing it works. You get what I'm saying? Jamaicans figure out how to get, you know, for Zelle and Venmo and Cash App on their phones, right? So they, and that's not available in Jamaica either, but they figured that out quick. So they can go on money, IG Live and money, say, money. Yeah, yo, dog, you don't know it upon my Cash App, dog, Riri. They figured that out real fast. So I'm just saying to you, they should be the people in the space who are also saying, listen, yes, yeah, Spotify, I've already had a Spotify account. Yeah. Because I'm saying, I've been using a VPN. Now that it's great that it's here in Jamaica to, to you know, you understand, to be able to look at the technology and examine it and see where it's going to go. I'm the streaming numbers have been growing, as you know. Yeah. The streaming yeah. numbers have been growing worldwide, as you know. It keeps growing, keeps growing. CDs are going down, down, down. Downloads are going down. Um, interestingly enough, you know that vinyl is actually outselling CDs for the first time in like forever, like recently, the last report, you know what I'm saying? So the streaming model is here to stay. It is growing bigger. More paid subscribers are coming on board all over the planet. The immediate impact of it for us here in Jamaica, I think how you take advantage of it is one, understand the platform. So as the creators, we know how to utilize it now to our advantage, Right. And two, remember this, Jamaican music has always been an export product. You understand? Our tourism is an export product. Our coffee is an export product, right? Um, Our marijuana is an export product. And the music has always been an export product. So when we were making music, we were selling records outside of Jamaica. It wasn't record sales downtown Kingston that was supporting any artist or any producer or any industry, right? When downloads came into play with iTunes, it's the same thing. People are downloading it outside of Jamaica. When we do stage shows, where's the money? Outside of Jamaica, not in the local stage shows. For the streaming, it's no different. It's a streaming that you want to get outside of Jamaica to stream the music we're making here. 
It is not a model of like, oh, now that we can stream locally, let us abandon the market demand for outside Jamaica. Let us become more inclusive, make music for Jamaicans and expect Jamaicans to want to stream it. Because the interesting thing about what's going to happen now is that nobody's going to be able to point the finger anymore and say, oh, you know what? It's your guys' fault because you there's no industry structure and there's no business set up and there's no Def Jam in Jamaica, whatever major label to push the music and to market and promote it. That will no longer be the excuse. The excuse is simply going to be my fans are not paying for a premium account. You're going to put it back on the people. And you're going to say to them, I'm making music. Why aren't you guys here in Jamaica that love me so much that come to my YouTube channel, leave all the comments, you understand? Drive up all my views, go on my Instagram, come on my IG lives, fill up my page with comments. Why aren't you guys paying the $5.99 per month for Spotify or Apple Music to support us, you understand, the music community, so that you guys can now go stream on the platforms where we're going to actually make some money from it. They're going to put it back onto the audience now. And that's going to be an interesting part now for everybody to sit back and say, listen, when the audience responds and how they respond, you get what I'm saying, and what reaction you get from them as to whether or not they choose to embrace these platforms. Will it always stay like this, JR? I certainly hope not. And people are going to say, Jeremy, look, people use Netflix in Jamaica now, et cetera. Yeah, it takes a long time for those things to be adopted in Jamaica. After we run through all of the Cody boxes and the Android this and the download that, and then we'll finally bite the bullet and some of us get Netflix. And we're still sharing the Netflix account with people. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. You're going to get some people are going to say, you know what, screw this. I can't be bothered with this YouTube thing. I just want to get Spotify. You know what I mean? You're going to slap some kids who are on audio Mac. It's going to be a very slow transition. It's going to take a long time. But eventually, I think the point I'm trying to make is that it's not going to be enough to sustain our business. You understand what I'm saying? We're, it's going to be nice, like, yeah, five years from now, maybe. Yeah, man, you know, we have decent Spotify penetration. We might have 50,000 people, even 100,000 people, whatever you think you're going to have. It's still a population. It's still a little place right there, a little amount of our kids or people are, are going to stream music. One of the things that you're missing in, in explaining what was good about it is how much we can now see the local consuming numbers. So World Music Views, as you know, is about chart curation. Like we, we have the accurate numbers for how music is consumed every day, every week, right? We didn't right. have that. With data, no. The data that I have now, I could start a record label in Jamaica if I wanted to, because it's, it's so detailed and meticulous. Like I could tell you who I run the place in Portland, in our lane, based on the, the, the cell tower that picks up the stream that's going on there, right? That's awesome, yeah. Um, so if if we now have Spotify where, where Spotify will give me a chart, I don't even have to do that chart no more. Spotify is going to give me a chart each week to say who I run the place on Spotify, right? Now, right. that to me is as powerful as, well, maybe not as powerful, but it's very important as a man who runs Sting, the man who locks Sting, always be the artist for the next year when I was growing up because that was the only way to validate audience consumption, audience reaction, you know? It, it's who were the, the man of the year was the thing in a dancehall. So I think Spotify, Apple, YouTube too, can't afford YouTube. YouTube is like the master of this whole video streaming thing. Mm. Um, it helps to validate the music 
at least locally, where there wasn't any structure before to understand the data. Like, where are people creating music and where are they consuming music? And do you have your YouTube numbers to see? Yeah, man. Yeah, man. I've, I've okay. So, but, so you had a barometer of local YouTube streaming, which That's was free. Okay. Yeah. So, so I think your Spotify number is going to show you who's paying for it. No, they'll show you the free one too. Right. So your Spotify numbers will be another barometer to just show another platform. Yeah. yeah. But I don't, I don't, but I don't, but you, but you've already have YouTube to, to show you that who was hot, who was running the place. You get what I'm saying? I don't, I don't think you never had anything. And then now you got in Spotify. So now you finally have something. I'm saying to you, you of all people have already showed me, like you can tell me exactly how many YouTube streams are from a local audience. You what I'm saying? To, so, Spotify's the audio, what YouTube is the video. So, so if a man don't drop a hot video, he probably won't get a lot of streams on YouTube. But if uh, I'm but YouTube is still the biggest audio streaming service in the planet, period. It still is, regardless, even if you think of it as that, like it's a video platform and not necessarily audio platform. It still is the number one consumption of music plan for all streaming everywhere. It's, mm-hmm. it's the largest music discovery platform too as well, out of all the digital platforms. This is where YouTube, where everybody goes to, you understand, to find new music as well. So good. Listen, they're, oh. both, they're both barometers. No, you're not wrong. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not contesting yeah. what you're saying. I'm mm-hmm. agreeing with you. I'm just saying that we've already had that barometer. I'm not really so sure, if not just for the sake of reporting, mm-hmm. just, you know, I'm saying like, hey, this oh, is yeah, JR, we- and the hottest song is this, this week in Jamaica, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, how does it affect industry-wide? Like, what does it do for our, our bottom line? So, so this the, is what, the, I'm, the music... what I'm asking. Protege, yeah. Protege got signed to a record label um, mm-hmm. with, with his production company, and, and he was able to send a couple of artists through, right? But right. Protege don't have a hit song. The, the traditional selection process that, that record labels use, which is... Yeah, for sell from a signer, that wasn't the case. Right. Cultural capital that I would assume, and, and the, the owner for RCA, well, the, the, the CEO for RCA said that it's an enthusiastic signing. That's what he said right. for signing Protege. Now, I'm saying, are we able, and I'm asking you, I'm not telling you, are mm. we able to see more marketing, promotional help? through the, the cultural capital and the validation that record labels will enthusiastically see. Because they couldn't see numbers before. They couldn't see it. They couldn't know who was really popping. The core audience was a part of the, the conversation. The, the people were full up a concert, a stadium. for Let's not say budget. Got enough people flying for that. The people were full up a protege concert, right? At, at Hope Zoo. Many of those people weren't on the platforms consuming music, so they couldn't know how would they respond to it. I'm saying, Protégé, other new artists coming in, do you think that the, with the advent of these platforms, the cultural capital will be as important for signings and, and artists going out there? And get I, I, I don't necessarily think so, because I don't think they're looking to what's happening in Jamaica as necessarily their decision maker as to whether or not they believe that this artist works for them. I think they're assigning and looking for artists and they always have that have been able to get themselves out of the core and be able to translate to a larger market where larger numbers exist. 
So the Shaggy's, the Sean's, all of these people, they weren't tearing up Jamaica for labels to take notice of them. But what happened is that they had records and they had impact outside of Jamaica for people to say like, hey, this can actually work outside of Jamaica. I think that remains true to this day. We still talk about this crossover record. You understand? We still talk about this ability to reach markets outside of Jamaica. And I think that that's the key as to what they've always been looking for. At the end of the day, it's still, as much as we want to talk about the culture, they still have to be able to make money from it. You understand? So there's little point in signing an actor trying to promote or push something because you think it's so culturally relevant to Jamaican culture. But if I can't earn from it, if it can't impact outside of Jamaica, then as a business, it, it doesn't really make any sense to anybody, even for the foreign label to come on, quote unquote, invest without even trying to comment much on, on, on Protégé's deal, which I can't because I don't know anything about it. Um, it's his impact across the world. You understand? Which makes him appealing. It's not because, well, you're rocking Jamaica. You get what I'm saying? It's, it's definitely impact. Now, does it matter? To be big in Jamaica? Yes, it does. Of course it does. Does it matter for your street credibility or your local credibility in, in, in the core market of Jamaica? Of course. It definitely gives people a jump start. It gets you noticed. It gets people talking about you. You know what I'm saying? A hundred percent. But I think they look at it very much from like, well, you know, who can do that versus who can graduate outside of the core market of Jamaica? You understand? And to be able to affect markets outside of Jamaica. I think that's really, you know, what they're, you know, just a lot more interested in. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's the impact. What, so, is that? what, what is that thing? Like, what makes an artist translatable outside of Jamaica? There's a lot of things. The first thing people will tell you, though, is that the music needs to be something that they can relate to. So topically, it needs to be something that they can relate to outside of Jamaica and also just the actual delivery of the song. So you can have, just in the same sort of way, if you think about it, you have hip-hop records which are really popular in Jamaica, for example. Right, and you have records which are big in the hip hop world and does no work in Jamaica. Right, we have a particular brand or style or artist that we like that we can understand, like literally when we hear them, which the topics resonate with us. And you have some other artists who are massive artists in the hip hop space, nobody in Jamaica cares about them. You know what I'm saying? Chief Keef, you know, some big Chicago drill rapper or something like you know what I'm saying? Like in Jamaica, like who the hell is that? It doesn't work. The, the patois, the language, the music, everything, it just doesn't work for us. Flip that back for our music abroad. You get what I'm saying? And then you get into this discussion of like certain types of records with certain types of, 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 of lingo or topic matter or even, you know, beats, you know, danceability, all of these type of things which resonate or don't resonate. These are factors which make records work and not work outside of your core. At the heart of it, it's difficult enough just for you as a Jamaican to speak to people outside of Jamaica when you travel for them to understand you. You understand? Especially if you have a very, very thick Patwa accent, you know, whereas perhaps me and you don't right now having this podcast, but you get what I'm saying? Somebody else might have, much less to do music, and you're doing it in deep Jamaican Patwa, and they can't get exactly what you're saying. They can't understand it. They can't get the topic. So these are the things that you're going to be thinking about. Um, in terms of records that kind of work. You know what I mean? People just say it in, you know, plain English records then, or topics everybody can kind of get with. You know what I'm saying? It, it's a market that you have to decide whether or not you want to cater to that market. I think it's very myopic for you to believe that I'm just going to make what I want to make. I'm going to make a song about me and how I'm feeling and what's going on in my area 
in my district or town or city in Jamaica or whatever. But I want it to cross over across the entire world. I want a white kid from Kansas in the middle of America to go on Spotify and stream that record of me talking about, you understand me, JR? That's yeah. where I think we'll get a little bit unrealistic. It's like, you know, that record is not going to take root as that quote-unquote crossover product. So it depends on your perspective. Yeah, I love that. I love how you went into that simplification of it. You can't make music for your lane. I expect that Kansas are going to immediately gravitate to it. But it it happens to hip-hop the same way. That same drill rapper in in Chicago, you get what I'm saying? He might make a song relevant to his community. That'll, That'll never cross over, you get what I'm saying? To a radio station in Miami, for example, much less get to Jamaica. Those songs are still important to speak. No, but the difference is that that drill rapper, he can sit down there on his own and he can get 10 million YouTube views just from his little community. And make millions of dollars. Oh, bro. So he's good. Like, I don't need to make records. Forget leaving America. I don't even need to make records to go a few states south of me. Yeah. Yeah. You understand me? They have that market, but we don't have the market. The number, we just the numbers just don't exist for us in that way. Now, to clarify, let's say pre-COVID or post-COVID. Yes, you could still do your shows. You get what I'm saying? And still do your dub plates and still make your living. So I'm not advocating that every dancehall artist needs to try and make, you know, gal wind up your bumper records like some simple, easy, catchy dance, you know what I'm saying? Thing that everybody will just like on the crossover tip. Definitely not. But you have to understand that that's what you're doing. You're now catering to that market who is going to bring you for the stage show to do your hardcore brand of dancehall or to pay for those dub plates. That's where your living is. For us to equate that to Spotify is in Jamaica, therefore, you understand? Mm -hmm. This artist with this hardcore lyric is now all of a sudden going to have the world at their feet. You know what I'm saying? Or get the entire Jamaica now. You know, all... 750,000 of those kids between 15 to 29 to suddenly pay 599 US for a subscriber account to stream 10 songs per day for the end of the month to see 300 million streams. And by the time you do the math and break it down, you're making a couple of extra thousand dollars each per artist in your pocket, if that much. It's it's not realistic to use that as like a, 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 a gains mechanism, is what I'm saying to you. But the points which you brought forward about the analytics. Right? That's a great point. And you're the man for that, definitely, to be able to say, well, now that we have Spotify, I can use that alongside my YouTube and show you that this song by this guy definitely is the hottest song in the core in Jamaica. Because that's streaming the most in the Jamaican marketplace, in the Kingston marketplace. As you said, down to freaking the Portmore marketplace, you could, you know what I'm saying, figure it out. Right. So that for the analytics side of it, it's, it's, that's great information to have. And particularly nowadays, where dancehall is not Kingston anymore. It hasn't been for the past two years. Dancehall is Montego Bay now. You get what I'm saying? Plus Kingston, plus St. Catherine, plus there's all of these pockets now where artists are coming from and being popular in their own right. St. Thomas. You get what I'm saying? St. Thomas in their own communities. Exactly, those guys out there as well. You know what I mean? So that's, that's fantastic analytics. And for that reason, I think it would be significant. You know what I mean? If they utilize that information, if that information can be made readily available, well, Get someone like yourself, you know, can pump that information out there and people can see it. So for that reason, it's fantastic. But in terms of the bottom line of like, wow, we're going to be able to make a living off of this now because us as Jamaicans will support us as Jamaicans. I think that's where we, we you understand me? The paywall is just too steep. 
and, and the culture of consumption is just way too different now. You're really asking a lot it's, for people to abandon the free platforms. Globally, like Spotify capitalizes on, on the relationship between themselves and the record labels, but they make a lot of money from podcasting because they can sell ads. In fact, right. they gave Joe Rogan a hundred million dollars. They've never given Saw that. They've never given Drake that money and Drake sell, no. <laughs> sell like a gazillion, exactly. you know? So, so podcasting, I'm excited to see what will happen in the podcast world and if they'll in fact come in, especially in Africa, especially in Latin America where those numbers are, are, are tremendous. And even here in Jamaica where we have influential people who have things to say that encapsulate large audiences. I'm looking forward to seeing that happening but what the, to switch conversations um mm. ask everybody this ask watch fire uh the the publishing and masters is where a lot of money is made in music right last year 43 billion dollars was made 12 percent of that went to artists partly because artists don't own their masters and and publishing in many cases jamaican no different. One, do you own your masters? Two, do you encourage more artists to own their masters or they should just make the music, give it away, get the money right now and, and you know, feed them family as is the case or as was the case with many artists? I, I listened to your podcast at Walsh Affair, right? Big up to Walsh. I know Walsh quite well. Me and him have interacted very well over throughout the years. You understand? And congrats to him on all of his his success and he's a very smart brother and, and he has a lot of great insight into the industry. Um, his answer was, yes, artists should own their masters. My answer is that if you can't exploit your masters properly, you owning the masters is nothing more than you just saying you own your masters. You're owning something and you don't know how to exploit it. In other words, you don't know how to utilize it for it to make money. So the fact of the matter is that does Jeremy Harding own masters? I have licensed out my masters to various record labels throughout the years, which has earned me money with a catalog. Instead of me sitting down and trying to tell you that I'm going to administrate my own masters. You get what I'm saying? So we're coming from a point of view as like, well, yeah, if you're going to tell me that you own your master, then that means that you're not going to assign it to a distributor for them to get a license to distribute the master and have certain rights to it. You understand? That means that you're not going to... Um, you understand, do publishing deals with, with, with administrators or co-pub deals with people that can also exploit your masters. You get what I'm saying? On both sides, on the actual master, master side, on the songwriting side, the publishing side. You can't side. own it and do all of that? You can't own the masters and... Well, and, well yeah. you don't have the infrastructure to do all of that. You don't have the reach. You just as one person, you just don't have it. You don't have the connections. You don't have a full staff. You don't have people out there pitching your music. You don't have people out there tracking down your royalties. You don't have people out there trying to figure out like, you understand how many streams were in freaking Hawaii last month so you can make sure you can go and collect it. You're just not really in that position. You're going to end up giving it to um, assigning the master to some service for them to be able to collect it for you. You follow what I'm saying? Number one. Number two, the value in the master is if the song is a hit. If the song is not a hit, then your, your value is nothing. You only earn publishing money from songs which are hits. They have to play on the radio. They have to stream. They have to get licensed, which means they have to be hit records. So everybody can sit around in their, in their homes with their laptops and say, yeah, well, I own all my masters, all 100 of them. They don't have any value. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So the, the better argument is to say, to understand 
how your publishing administration works and make sure that you have a publishing administrator at the very least, if not a co-publishing deal, would recognize publishers or administrators so they can properly monetize the catalog and go out there and see where it's making money and try and put it in places to get money and collect the monies on your behalf. You follow what I'm saying? And there's a lot of that money to which they just even can't collect as you own. You have to have a publisher for them to be able to go and collect it. So the real value is in learning how that works. There's a shocking amount of dancehall artists, shocking number, that have no publisher administration deals in place. Nobody's collecting the publishing on their behalf. Big artists, you'd be surprised to know. You get what I'm saying? And you'd be like, why? And it's simply because they just don't understand how it works. And there's this mantra in their head that, well, you know, I own my publishing. And so nobody's not asking you to give up ownership of your publishing. Like, let's be clear. You're talking about your copyright in the writing of your music is one thing different from owning a master recording. You have two different things. But you need people to exploit the copyright for you to make money, which is why you have all of these services, which is why you have PROs, right? The ASCAPs and the BMIs of the world, which is why you have the publishing companies who are out there and which is why you have the labels. And even if you sign up for a service like a DistroKid or, or, a, or a CD Baby to tune or to put it out yourself, they're still going to recommend to you a publishing administrator. They're going to be like, oh, you know, you guys need a public. Why don't you sign up with SongTrust, for example? You get what I'm saying? BeatStars, the platform where you sell and you lease beats, now have a publishing um, um, deal as well, I think, with Sony Music Publishing. So they're now offering publishing services as well to people who are putting up beats for sale or for lease. Mm-hmm. You follow what I'm saying? Because it's another place to go and collect money from where they're going to realize that, oh, people are, you know, nobody understands how this works. You have Sound Exchange, which is yet an, another entity which collects um, royalties on the digital side. Right for your Sirius XM and your Pandora and your what they call the non-interactive streaming. In other words, the, the radio station style streaming. Then not Spotify where you click and select play and etc. But you understand, as I said, like the Pandoras and the Sirius XMs and those kind of places, satellite, internet radio and those things. Mm-hmm. Right, and Sound Exchange where they, where they, where where they collect. You understand where you have monies over here to collect for the for the master rights owners and for the performers. If all I'm saying, these are the things which people need to be more concerned about rather than just trying to proudly puff up your chest and say, well, I own my master. What are you doing with it? So at the top level of, of the music business is where the music turns into paper, right? So Vivendi, who owns Universal, as a publicly traded company and investors buy the music as paper, like it's a catalog, right? Um, mm. Hypnosis, who I'm going to be interviewing them in a couple of weeks, they're buying a lot of publishing. They bought Shakira's publishing recently. All right. They're buying up all these publishing for, for hundreds of millions of dollars. And they're a publicly traded company in the UK. All right. Do you think we in Jamaica need to organize ourselves as such and, and start to own publishing companies at that level where we are, we're making the music as manufacturers which started from, as you explained earlier, the, the, the big board and then the computer, and then now we can make music anyway, right? But we haven't found, as you just explained, the, the kind of market efficiency and, and the kind of brain power to organize ourselves at the top level of music where, where we own the instrument where the music turns into securities paper. 
You get me? So, but, so Rihanna's catalog, um, um, everybody's catalog, Sony, Sony, ATV own everybody catalog, including Skilly Bang, which they just made a deal with recently. Um, but at the, beyond the person that owns Sony, which is the, the people Kanye in, in discussions with now to buy back his masters, um, those people own the music where, where it turned into security paper. Do you think we need to have companies like that listed on the stock exchange, especially for new artists who don't make music yet, and, and turn the music into proper investment um, options, just like Lasco sell mackerel, Lasco have Lasco manufacturing, all these companies listed on the stock exchange, they have a product to sell. Do you think we can commoditize the music at that level in Jamaica? And well, first of all, I'll say two things I'll say to you. First of all, number one, we do have our own publishing companies. We've had them for years. And there's this myth that people say that we don't have these companies don't exist in Jamaica. Of course you do. Augusta Clark has Dubplate Music Publishing. VP has STB Publishing. There's Greensleeves Publishing. There's Jack Russell Publishing in the UK. There's um, uh, Tafari Music. There's uh, Royalty Network. You get what I'm saying? There are tons, tons of reggae music publishers owned by Jamaicans and some of them in Jamaica and some of them outside of Jamaica. There's all kinds of reggae music publishers that have been existing for the last 20 years, 30 years easily, who publish the catalogs. You understand? Some of them do administration. In other words, they just kind of collect and pass on the money for a smaller fee. Some of them do actual co-publishing deals, right? Where they're doing, they're doing a co-ownership on the publishing side of the records. You know what I'm saying? And they, and, they, and they exploit the records, they collect the monies for them, they facilitate, they try and shop them to get them into, you know, synchronization deals for movies, TV, etc. We have all of those things. They have all existed. The catalogs aren't of the value that you can publicly list these on any kind of stock exchange to generate any capital. The, the catalogs just don't have the value. That's what it boils down to. Shakira's catalog has value. Timberland, the Eagles, right? all of these people who are selling their publishers, they have massive value. All of these catalogs, so of course, they're worth that money. Of course, they can attract investors because somebody's going to say, yes, 10 years from now, we're going to take up this same Shakira record and we're going to put it back in our TV commercial for 30 seconds and it's going to earn us immediately I'll attract a license fee of a million bucks, for example, right? Or some artist is going to come and cover her catalog or sing back one of her songs or it's going to be in some sort of new a virtual, you know what I'm saying, video game experience, like your Fortnite and you're doing a Travis Scott concert, they're paying $25 million. Mm. You get what I'm saying? To be able to do that. So it will have value. You have another thing now called NFTs, right? Non-fungible tokens in the art world, which is cryptocurrency based, right? Bitcoin and Ethereum attaches that value to it. So this is crypto art, now, where people are selling digital art in marketplaces. I know it's trans, it's, it's now, the music is like at the very, very cusp of entering that market as well, where people are making um, exclusive content to sell digitally on, on the blockchain with NFTs, right? You guys can go Google it and look it up. It's a fascinating space. So all of those things people are looking at and saying like, yeah, these things are going to have value in the future. For us to sit here now with Jamaican music, first of all, as I said, one, we do have the catalogs. They're, they're massive. You know what I'm saying? They, they do exist out there for the publishing. So it's not like nobody has to invent any new publishing company to hold the catalog, especially for the quote-unquote young artists or whatsoever. It exists. Number one. Number two, again, it boils back down to value. 
Just because you make it doesn't mean it has value. Music has to have value. It has to be a hit record to have value. You understand what I'm saying, JR? It has to be a hit. It has to stream. It has to play. It, it has to sell. It has to, you get what I'm saying? Be performed. It has to be broadcast. It has to go on the radio. It's got to be a hit for it to, be, to, to have any value or any worth. You can't just make it and sit with it and say, it has worth because I made it. You get what I'm saying? So these things have existed. And a lot of younger practitioners I've noticed in this space have now gotten up and tried to say things like, oh, well, you know, nothing. the business structure isn't there because these things don't exist. You're correct about the business structure, but the fact is that the companies do exist. The distributors exist. The publishing companies do exist. You understand? The methods of collection do exist. You do have jams. You do have JCAP. And you don't have to sign up with those people. You could still go to your ASCAPs and your BMIs and these places and sign up and, and your PRS and these things in London. All of these things and these societies very much exist. You get what I'm saying? And they're out there and people, some people do take advantage of them, some do not. And mostly JR, it's just because of, they just don't know. They just don't understand how it works. They have never taken the time to, to, to research it or to look into it. They're just not interested. They just have a very blinkered approach to the music industry, which mm -hmm. is I want to make my song. I want to put it on YouTube. I want to get how much people, millions to love it. You get what I'm saying? Then I want to get my visa and fly on a plane and go and do my show and collect my cash. Yeah. And that's pretty much, aside from the YouTube part, that's how Jamaica music industry has been from, I've known it from the 90s. Make a record, guitar, disc jockey, make it popular. Guitar, disc jockey outside of Jamaica, make it popular outside of Jamaica, on the radio, in, in the dances, then eventually a promoter calls me and says, my youth, show where I must send the money or when you come, you pick it up, send you two tickets and they go on their work. And that's been our music industry. Mm -hmm. As I said, since I've known it from the 90s, the only component which has changed is now instead of giving it to the radio disc jockey, you now you have the ability to say, well, screw radio, which I don't necessarily agree with, but that's the thought process. You get what I'm saying? No more gatekeepers. Why, why you put don't it right think to YouTube? Screw radio. Tell me why you don't think it's screw radio. You, you can't say screw radio because you're not going to be Taylor Swift without radio. You're not going to be Bruno Mars without radio. You're not going to be a massive superstar without radio. The influence of radio is still, you understand, massive, massive influence that you can't escape. It's still, it's, 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 it's an incredible influence on the music industry across the planet, but you still can't escape. You understand? Internet notwithstanding. So it's, not to say you can't make money from the internet. Sure, you could be a, a Latin music artist, a reggaeton artist or somebody like that and you could have a hot song that is killing the reggaeton space and you have 200 million views. And you're going to say, yeah, well, I have the same amount of views as Taylor Swift and I just made even more money off of YouTube. Sure, but you're never going to be that household name and that mega star like Rihanna, like Chris Brown, like Taylor Swift without, understand? Radio. Still the influence of terrestrial radio. Yeah, without a doubt, you're, you're still not going to be able to do it. So, it just gives you another option, whoever, as an artist, is what I'm saying to you. You get yeah. what I'm saying? Many artists don't really care about those things. You'd be surprised, or maybe not so surprised to know. Many artists are just like, listen, I just want to make my music in my space. As a matter of fact, I just want to be able to have my website with my music and my Instagram, and I use Bandcamp. And I sell my own records on Bandcamp, and I'm good. And I make a few thousand bucks a month, and I'm happy with that. I don't want to be a part of the machine of the music industry necessarily to make a living out of music. Many musicians just tour on their shows. You get what I'm saying? They just love performing. They just love touring and doing shows, whether you're in a band or whether you're a DJ or you're a rapper or you're some sort of performance art person. 
If you're an EDM DJ or that kind of guy, you couldn't care less about a record label. You put out your music, you put it on Beatport, you, you, you go and do your show, you go and DJ, quote unquote, DJ perform in front of, you get what I'm saying? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people and they make crazy money. They're not relying on the traditional music industry of like a song on the radio and an artist and going to the Grammys and et cetera, et cetera, to make a living. You have different facets of the music industry of how people make a living and what people want to get out of the music industry. Who are you listening to now? To be honest with you, I've spent less time listening to music and more time paying attention to the technology, to be very honest with you. So I've had a massive interest, as I said, in that NFT space, in that Bitcoin space. Um, I think it's fascinating. I've been looking a lot into the kind of whole, you know, online world of, 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 of you know, you know, selling courses and marketing and, you know what I'm saying? And that sort of influence and sphere that it has on the entertainment industry. Mm. You get what I'm saying? I, I'm actually have a lot more interest in that nowadays um, than actually particularly listening to like any particular artist that comes along. You know, fortunately for me, I have kids who are listening to music every day. So they're quite as quick to come and say, dad, check this out, check that out, check that out. So I do try and stay on top of, you know, definitely things which come out. I, I'm not one of these anti-trap dancehall people, as you like to call it. I've said it in many, many interviews. I think there's a lot of great music still being made out of Jamaica. I think there's a lot of great dancehall still being made, even though the sound is different, even though it's not the 90s, which is my era. You understand? Which I kind of grew up in. I still think there's fantastic music out there and fantastic artists out of Jamaica. You get what I'm saying? And I do um, love a lot of what they're doing, both the producers and on the artist side. You get what I'm saying? So I definitely try and, and you know, keep in touch with that. And I, I keep an eye on that as much as possible as well. And at our court, JR, we're still, you know, musicians, you know. I said music school, I play guitar. We're never going to really leave that. We still love music. You get what I'm saying? No matter what the business side brings or doesn't brings. So that's always going to be a part of us, no matter what we end up doing in life. Yeah. And my final question here is, <clears throat> in, in, in your whole time doing music, what has been your greatest lesson? And what, what do you want young artists to understand about this business? I think, the, I think the greatest lesson in it is that at some point in time, you have to realize that it may be art for you, but it's business for almost everybody else who is involved in it. So the art part of it is you as a creator and you're making your song and perhaps you with your producer and you're making the beat and you're making a recording. After that part of it is finished, it's, it's pretty much all about business, whether or not it can sell, whether or not it can stream, whether or not you can perform on a stage show, whether or not you have that value assigned to you. I think when you start understanding that, it, it kind of gives you a broader look at like how to function in the industry then, instead of constantly trying to, you know, crow from the top of the, you know, the rooftop and talk about how great you are as an artist and how unfair things are and the break that you're not getting and the people who are fighting against you and what the radio man is doing and the blah, blah, and the boy, J.R. Watkins, don't feature my song pan ER. You get what I'm <laughs> saying? When, <laughs> when, when you get that stuff out of your system and you start to understand like, no, but what's your business value to everybody? You yeah. know what I'm saying? You want to have your team or you can pay the team. The team need to get paid. The team is not doing it just because they think your, your second verse was amazing. And I think a lot of artists still kind of get stuck in that place of like, well, we have talent. And it's a word of Jamaica loves to throw it around. Yeah, man, he's so talented as if talent is supposed to equal remuneration for service. And it doesn't. We're all talented. Everybody, me talented, you talented. 
All of them have talent. Jamaica has never shot a talent. Eh? One thing for certain, we have enough talent all over the place, all the time. It's about how you capitalize on it. So I don't think having talent is like the reward to be able to say, well, I'm talented. So please reward me now with success because I'm talented. I think that's a critical mistake we keep focusing on in this country, especially with our creative industry, talking about how talented people are and why they should be because they are talented. You follow what I'm saying? It's game is like 15% talent, 85% business. You know what I'm saying? I think that's, I think we just need to be able to get that and understand that balance. And if you're the artist and you don't want to, have to think about that, then put some people around you who think about that part. And you focus on being talented and making music. You, you understand what I'm saying? Or creating your art and, and, and let the people around you who you trust focus on that business side of it. You get what I'm saying? And on the money-making side and the career side. And that, that's what I would love to see. And I'd love to see more stories of more artists being able to mature as the years go by. Over the, and we can look at them and say, yes, they're still around. They're good. Their families are good. They made some good investments. They did some good things. They have a catalog. They're doing whatever. And not the sub story of like, boy, whatever happened to that guy? Why was big back then? And what can I hear from him? No one thing. That's also another, you know what I mean? Very sad story about Jamaican music and musicians, which we, we need to correct and we need to change that. Yeah. Big up, Jeremy Harding. This was so insightful. If you notice, I let you talk. But when you're talking, I'm, I'm, I'm totally absorbing <laughs> what he's saying, Regin. Big up yourself. Big up. This is World Music Views. World Music Views TV show, World Music Views podcast available everywhere. Thank you for coming on, Bridget. Big up. Thanks, I Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All the best. All right. You too. Bye. <laughs> if you want to hear the songs mentioned or heard on this episode, go to YouTube or on your favorite streaming platform and search World Music Views Playlist to hear more.